welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. Thanks so much for joining us. This time we have Sophie Lewis. Sophie is a translator. She lives in London. She translates French and Portuguese to English. She used to be an editor as well. She talks a little bit about that. Um, and she writes as well. She writes articles and essays on translation. We spoke quite particularly about two books she has translated by Noemi Lefebvre, Blue Self-Portrait and Poetics of Work, both published by Les Fugitives in the UK and Transit Books in the US. The idea was to kind of drill down into the translation of these books and their very different styles and tones Later on, we talk about literary tone, as you'll hear, and their use of, well, kind of Noemi's use of motifs and turns of phrase and certain kind of idiomatic language that can be difficult or very interesting challenges for a translator. You'll hear later us talking about um, the phrase fucking fast, which comes up quite a lot in Poetics of Work and an English colloquialism that Sophie wanted to use for another one of Noemi's motifs that got um, nixed by the American publisher. We also talk about Sophie having to translate technical information about Sig Sauer guns and we hear some really interesting stuff. This is, as I say later, this is the stuff that I'm really fascinated by now is these is very, very practical parts of what translating is. How Sophie reads text, how she does that first draft of a translation, how she finds out whether her translations hit the mark or not, and things like publishers' reports, all that good stuff. But we'd both recently been seeing Matthew Barney's new show at the Haywood, so we've started off talking about that. Did you watch the whole thing? No. <laughs> I came in in the middle of the film somewhere yes. or a third in and then watched a third or something and went and looked at more trees. Mm. And I'm going to watch properly the whole thing maybe a couple of times. Oh, really? Yeah, well, yeah, because you get sent a link with the ticket. Yeah, I'm not sure I could watch the whole Matthew Barney film online. I just don't know if I could do it. Like physically, I think I would just start getting twitchy. There's something about a gallery where maybe it's just authority or the big screen or the sound or something where I, I just sat there and really enjoyed that feeling of not being able to do anything else. But you, yeah, have, you um, have the patience you're totally for right. it. You're right. I think um, the best place would have been to watch it there. But I was with a pregnant friend and she had sort of limited kind of limited patience. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I was just on my own to watch it and it was probably the first time I've been in the gallery in about six months and it was like luxurious to just sit there and spend the whole afternoon there but I, f- I find it so hard to watch art films with other people because there's always this pressure of like oh, are they do they want to go in a minute like should we kind of finish up and there's no especially in those films like there's nothing to grip onto to be like okay we've seen enough now there's no like yeah nothing no story to hang on to is there well I guess there is there's more story in that than in some art films I've tried to watch with other people. (laughs) Um, Knowing Diana Acteon a little bit or sort of in outline and then enjoying the snow was pretty good. Mm, Yeah. Apparently it's caused lots of controversy because the lead, you know, the lead, I guess she's an actress in this case, the lead performer is a a marksman who's, um, I don't know if she's actually involved in the NRA, but the NRA love her because she's a woman who loves to shoot guns. So she's a good kind of spokesperson. So in America, the films generated a bit of controversy. And and yeah, the title readout is this idea of um, kind of, what's the word? A base that you would go to when 
you're fighting the American government or whatever. It's all these kind of a prepper anti-government yeah. kind of imagery and I, stuff. What I wanted to know, which I'll have to sort of investigate a bit, was whether wolves did get reintroduced in Idaho or whether mm. that was just a project that, that, that they saw off. No, they did. Um, they did get reintroduced and okay. it's really, really controversial. Yeah. And the kind of, I suppose, to put it in really basic reductive terms, yeah, the the right wing gun toting people who live there don't like it. And they, and yeah. they over the years, changed the laws so they are allowed to shoot more and more of the wolves. So they kind of cull them, but to the point now where they're basically trying to hunt them into extinction again. Not extinction, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay, so I was thinking we could talk about, um, obviously you talk about your work generally as a translator, but we could focus on the, I need to say her name, is it Noemi? Yeah, Noemi. It's Noemi. kind of got almost okay. two stresses. Noemi Lefebvre. Yeah, yeah. And the two books that you translated of hers, Blue Self-Portrait and the uh, Poetics of Work, isn't it? It hasn't got a, yeah. a the. Um, and I read, I read Poetics of Work first and then... Did you lend me? So is this your copy? No, I think it's yours now. I think I gave oh, it to you. I know, but I mean, um, did yeah, you, is I, this? So this has got your, I'm just going to start with this because I thought this was really interesting. This has got your notes in. Oh, sorry. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, probably. I don't know any, there's no one else's notes in there. But I couldn't what work I out why you would be making notes in a book that you've, that's published, that you've translated. <laughs> I think I was teaching it at Lancaster University. Ah. Oh. You know, kind of mini master's course something like that yeah to do with music right oh wow oh uh yeah actually a lot of it's to do with schoenberg i don't know there's there's things like places so to 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 give the listeners some context the book blue self-portrait is written as a single paragraph that's right isn't it there's, there are no paragraph breaks at all that's right and i would say it's almost like in my head, it's almost like Thomas Bernhardian in its relentlessness. Bernhardt is one of her top faves and very much an But quite a lot of the things that you've put in are places where you think there could be a paragraph break <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I, I, I need to review these notes. Yeah, it's interesting. Me. Because I was thinking, I mean, now, now it makes more sense if you were teaching teaching with it. But I was so intrigued at the idea that you... Presumably, and maybe you could talk about this, to translate a book, you have to read it multiple times in the original. And then I suppose in some ways you're checking it back and forth. So you're reading your own text in a way that you might not even read it as if you were just writing something. So it just struck me as really funny that you'd like then gone back through the published edition of Making Notes. (laughs) But maybe you could talk a bit about that process because that's obviously kind of fundamental, isn't it? Yeah. Um, to sort of start from the back end of it, one of the things that's great is that things do get published and generally you're not allowed to touch them again because otherwise you just, you just having been freed from the constraints of finishing, you might never end it and it would be disastrous. Um, the process of translating, you, you just have to start. I mean, that sounds silly, but, but obvious as well. You just have to get going and dive in. And although I had read it before I transla- began translating, I think the key is to remember for the translator to remember that they can't possibly have taken everything in on that first reading and so ideas about structure and motifs that matter and even particular meanings of what happened are probably Mm. some things are going to be wrong and so 
translate it all the way through, it it won't it a it won't be great translation. It won't be great prose. B I always leave in loads of options. I leave lots of different ideas in my translation, so it's at three or four times as long, and it's just full of it's it's not complete. It's not it's not continuous prose. And C I won't have worked things out. I won't have discovered what the actual meaning of stuff is. I'll have gone quickly and kind of skated over bits. And for me, that's fine. I I expect that. And then I go back to the beginning and start again and go in a more meticulous way, which I find easier because I've got stuff to work with. Mm. When there's English to work on rather than another language somewhere, a complete text that's perfect and a blank page, I find it much easier to work on the on the sort of higgledy-piggledy prose that, that I've started to create. So you already read the book and I guess we could talk about your relationship with the author in a bit, but when you know you're going to translate it, you come back to the book and do you read it all the way through again before you even start translating or do you just start going? Just start, just start because it's not going to be, nothing will be perfect anyway, understanding or plan wise. So getting going is the best way to engage. Yeah. Deep end wise. That's so interesting. So, so you're doing the read because in my head, I was thinking it was interesting that it's a process of being a reader and then turning that into some kind of production or, or creative work but you're saying that actually those things happened at the same time straight away and then they happen again and again and I suppose yeah, yeah what, that's at what right. point do you at what point are you not looking at the original text anymore the last read or okay. two the, the very last read I try really hard to not look mm. because the idea is that if something trips me up then the reason is that I haven't written it very well. And if I can't rewrite it in such a way that it's good, then I go back to the mm. original and see what it was I didn't get mm. or what's difficult about it. But mostly it's just about my composition, my writing by that point. So is that the moment when it becomes like an object of its own rather than an object that's in relation to someone else's kind of thing? If a, if a point needs to be chosen when that happens, I think that it's... It's a dodgy, dodgy is a poor word. It's, it's, it's not necessarily a helpful exercise to try and work out or to set a line when that happens. Yeah. Because it's always, it will always be in relation to the previous text. It's just that it still has to be taken as a work by itself at the same time. Uh, it's a kind of double existence, <laughs> I think. That's, I think that's how I see it. Otherwise, yes, you become engaged in other games around the side of it. Like if you change the title to the extent that it's not obviously a translation of the uh, of the first title. Have you separated it further and made it yours more or, you know, things like that? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we said this before when we spoke, but, you know, Dostoevsky's notes from underground. Mm. I've heard that a much closer translation would be something like notes from under the floorboards. <laughs> I don't know that. It's nice. I always thought it was like, a tale of like Russian nihilists or something because notes from underground sounds like well yeah like no terrorism or spies or something but actually it's this kind of yeah story of this very resentful person spitefully complaining and notes from under the floorboards is like yeah makes a lot more sense has someone no one's published that translation no I don't know what I don't know that's what made me want to read it because I'd always I'd never really read much Dostoevsky and then someone put, I read this thing about it being more about resentment. And I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. So I read it. Titles, titles are annoyingly huge. Yeah. I mean, you know, Proust and all of that. And I fussed over the article for Poetics or The Poetics and A Poetics for a stupid you know, length of time. And So 
Blue self-portrait is auto-portrait blur, isn't it, in French? En bleu, yes, it is. It's also, a, it's, it's a prior title because it's the title of the painting by Schoenberg. Yeah, okay, so that already has a translated version that you can just say, okay, that's obviously what we're going to call yeah. it. it had to be poetics that. of work, what, what was that in the original French? Poétique de l'emploi. And does that not require an article in French? It could have had one. Mm. To not have one in French is a bigger decision than to not have one in English, yeah. You'd be more likely to call it une poétique de l'emploi mm. or something like that. Yeah, I mean, they're much more into the articles in general, like La France, <laughs> you know, we just say England. Oh, yeah, that's true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I like that idea that they're just much more into articles. <laughs> it's probably a grammatical <laughs> way to describe this language. <laughs> that makes no, I prefer sense. that. I prefer that. Because <laughs> I think that's that's what's so intriguing to people like me who have no second language skills I haven't translated something since I did Latin in year seven at school and we had to translate things that was the last time I really did translation Impuella sub aborum <laughs> that was good yeah actually I think I it's wrong I did a bit of the same course possibly yeah it's that it's the book I think that all like anyone who's doing Latin gets it's about people girls being under trees uh, people being in atriums a lot. Nutella. Kind of thing. <laughs> She's always in an atrium. What's so fascinating is the idea that what surrounds or what a language is when it's not a dead language like Latin, it has all this context in this culture that makes it what it is. And there's so many moments when now that I'm explicitly reading a book that I know has been translated, I know, I know who's translated, I know you've had to make these decisions. I can't remember which one it is, if it's Blue Self-Portrait or Poetics of Work. But there are some almost like anachronistic English words in there. And I wondered, I haven't actually made any notes of what they are, but I wondered because they can't be li literal translations from French words. Like, how do you make those decisions where things, especially with Noemi Lefebvre, is that she's so idiosyncratic, like the way she writes, you know, changes between the books and also it's quite, she's got a kind of, she likes turns of phrases. She'll repeat turns of phrases over and over again. Like, you, you know, you're, as you, you were saying last time we met, you're, you're not French and it's not like you spend lots of time in France. So That's do you right. have to kind of keep up with the culture of France or literary culture in French? Or how do you know when, how do you know when to take these kind of decisions? I um, ought to be keeping up with the literary culture in France. <laughs> But it's it's I mean, that's a crazy thing to attempt to do yeah. while, you know, still being what I should do, as well as the literary culture in Brazil. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you do. Another one that I should be keeping up with. But then, you know, there's England as well. Um, so that's crazy. So I have shortcuts, which is basically friends, literary mm. friends, reading friends. Um, I also personally think it's more important to read more of an author's own works and also what they've been reading and also what they like. So you create a world where you understand the idiom and and a lot of where their influences come from. And you'd never, I would never understand the majority of, of where her idiosyncratic uses come from. But I can always ask her. And yeah. and I have, yeah, I have some key people who I go to who are linguistically aware and a bit multilingual and based in the places I ought to be. And I think that's, it's got to be that way. You can't master languages to the extent that you also master their cultures. Yeah, like of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially if you're doing multiple languages. But then that's, I mean, more and more on this podcast, like what I'm always fascinated by is these kind of obvious practical solutions to these problems of accessing or like creating an aesthetic. Yeah, of course, you just like 
phone someone up who you know that's in France and be like, would it be totally insane to translate this as this? Or like, do you know what she's talking about when she says this? That's exactly, exactly what happens. And then they lead me to a new dictionary that I hadn't yeah, okay. discovered. Or, and, and quite often I'm, I'm researching stuff in, in our sort of realm of English language resources, but museums are really helpful, you know, and, mm. and institutions of all kinds have archives where I can sort of compare costumes or I can compare um, historical documents and just stuff that they've got. What was I thinking of? Oh, I had to do some work on Sig Sauer's for poetics of work the gun that the um, police are holding when they're basically when they're sort of attacking the poor guy <laughs> they're after oh, yeah. in that part um there's a sort of description it's basically i think an excerpt from a gun manual all about the sig sauer and it's like a publicity sort of thing all about how amazing it is and how well it's been made <laughs> and i had you know this is not my realm here um so I've, yeah, I put a call out. There's some really helpful translators forums. And one guy turned out to have done all kinds of work on weaponry. And he advised me about grips and holstering and stuff that I couldn't have known about in English, never mind in French. And yeah. So it was, you know, you just need networks really more than anything. And with, with that situation, what's, do you ever go down crazy rabbit holes? Are you tempted to try and find the, the same bit of documentation that the company put out for the English market? If that exists, I want to find it. But Quite often, I don't rate the translations used for that kind of commercial stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's too different. And also practically, even if it's a decent translation, but it's too different from what was in my text, then I think I have to probably retranslate because otherwise I'm going to be talking about other things. So maybe we could talk about your relationship with the author then. So with Noemi, did you know her already in a personal capacity before you read her work? I hadn't met her. I didn't know her work. Um, I entirely owe my translating relationship with her to the first publisher, mm. the publisher of Blue Self-Portrait. Cecile Lee runs Les Fugitives and she, she said to me, I should, I should read this book and I should translate it. She thought it was one for me. And I read it and agreed, really, really loved it, fell for it completely. And was really too in awe of Noemi for a while to even write to her and then introduced myself and sent her my usual sort of starter batch of questions, which is... I always hope it's the longest one because I can imagine that authors are just groaning when they receive these things. But she was quite game in response. She gave me a bit of detail here and there. And I set up the launch for that book in my local bookshop, The Review in Peckham. And so she came over, which was just amazing. And we got to hang out in the pub. And I mean, it was like it was like a, a French alien on English territory somehow. She was like a little plot of Frenchness that just landed but didn't modify at all. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, she's, she's absolutely, she's so much her own person. And she just, <laughs> she was, it was brilliant to have her. So we sort of began a proper friendship from there, I think. Mm, okay, that's interesting. So in those, in those starter questions, are there things that you always ask authors? Are there, are there things that you find yourself always having to ask? Or is it always different for every book? The questions about particular words are always different. And like, what is this? Can you send me a picture that I mean, that comes back, but it's about different things. But the thing that I'm now asking every time is what should I be reading? What have you been reading? And what should oh, I be yeah. reading? I need a reading list now. I've become professional enough to ask for it in advance. Yeah, because I suppose you could just start work and then get halfway through the book and be like, oh, I've never read that book or I've never seen yeah. that picture or whatever. Well, not seeing the picture. That's OK, because what time that's all right but getting deep into Victor Klemperer in good time to kind of get the point as well as find the quotes is better done in advance 
And um, yeah, how does that relationship change over the course of the novel? So, so you do it over email? Are you ever chatting on the phone? Are you obviously not meeting up in person necessarily? But one of my uh, more recent translations was done for a, a book by an anthropologist, and she was quite often not anywhere to be found at all. But occasionally she'd pop up and she'd say, "Let's speak," and we would we would talk, and it would be funny time zones, and we would just we would just sort of hash everything out speaking, which for her was just the way to do it. I I, don't, I really don't mind. I don't mind as long as we are understanding each other. There is a unique problem. I think it's a unique problem for people translating into English, which is that a huge number of authors not just think they have good English, but have got really quite good English, sometimes extremely good, and that means that they have a grasp on what. I'm creating as a translator that is excellent, but not quite good enough to understand all the things that I've chosen to do. So it's risky. There needs to be a lot of trust. And trying to establish the trust and maintain it is is really crucial, while still giving them the access that they want and you know genuinely consulting. Yeah, because I suppose if they couldn't read English at all, then they would have no interest in seeing what you've done. But are you? But with with English translations, do authors tend to want to see them as they're progressing? Some do. I really try and put them off. Yeah. Because it's messy, like I said. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, no, mostly not, but they do sometimes want to see it when I hand it to the publisher or before before I do that. And even then, it's not been edited. So there's a whole, you know, there's a kind of layer of work that's not been applied to it. So I sort of try and do lots of caveats and say, of course, but, you know, just hold on, send comments, but it's not, you know, it's it's not finished. Don't panic, don't worry. But it's also when, when as a, as a, as an editor, I had a bad experience with an author who who learned of a decision made by her translators who were commissioned by me. So this is a whole other working scenario. Yeah. These translators had made a reasonable decision about changing the dominant tense from present to a sort of average storytelling past. And she was very forceful and adamant that it should be in the present. And due to contractual obligations, she had a kind of final say and the translators had to go through the whole very long book and change it all which is oh, not it's not a simple thing to do it was it was mind-blowing so I just I never want to be in the position of those poor translators yeah <laughs> so oh I do my God. best to avoid that but that does seem like quite a big decision you wrote about this in it's, I can't remember if it's the afterword of Poetics of Work or just a, a piece that you wrote somewhere about you translated the whole of Poetics of Work and then I can't remember you'll you have to tell me the story but basically about there being no um no gendered pronouns used in the book sorry no no personal gender pronouns for the protagonist and the narrator. Is that right? No gender markers. That's right. That's I wouldn't say pronouns because it's not all about the person, but about yeah. objects. But yes, um, I wrote for, pre- for pen transmissions. It was just an article. It was kind of conceived as a translator's note, but it, I wrote it too late to go in the book. <laughs> um, uh, and it was something that I was... Um, I wanted to get off my chest, but I was very nervous about it, as you can imagine. <laughs> because it um, felt, did it feel like a, a crazy slip up? I mean, you said you went back through the book and realised that you'd managed to translate it in, in the way in the way that she'd written it without actually realising that it had been a kind of conscious decision on her part. Yeah, I was I was both lucky and competent, mm. but on the big scale, massively incompetent for not having this <laughs> huge feature of the text. Um, and it was pointed out to me months after I handed it in, someone commented on how excited they were, you know, to see what I'd done, particularly given this amazing feature of the text. And I, I sort of did a secret double take and 
<laughs> it was just awful. It was totally awful. Um, so I, I wrote to both publishers and I said, look, you know, to my great embarrassment, I realized that Noemi's done this amazing thing and it's an incredible feat of work and she's proud of it. And I'm just very concerned that we need to review the text. And then, and then I read the whole thing through as carefully as I could. And it seemed bizarrely fine. It was fine. I didn't change anything in, in the light of that mm. reading. And then I spoke to Noemi because I'd been so embarrassed about the whole thing that I couldn't tell her until I'd established that it was okay. And then um, the book was kind of being sent to press and Cecile said, do you want to write a translator's note? And I sort of sat on it for a while. And then, you know, the only thing to write was about this. There, mm. you know, there were some small niggles that I, there were many other things I could have written, but that was the, that was the thing that needed saying because it's such a dirty secret really for a translator to <laughs> hold on to. Um, and so, and so I did, and I've received really nice feedback. I think it's the kind of slip that people are very afraid of making. Mm. But it's a practical thing. And a few trans no, two translators wrote to me and said they'd done something similar. But I think I was also lucky because the book was so well constructed. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, obviously it's, it's your own competence as well. But what you're saying there is part of it is that the book was so well constructed and so the intention was carried through so well that there wasn't an another way of translating it that would have like embellished yeah, your... That's you know, right. It wasn't that... That's right. That's right. And there's also, I suppose, an element of the features, the ways the two languages work that mean having done the work she did in the French, I'd have had to distort the book to add things back in. Mm, OK, so wait a minute. I'm just thinking about French. What does she so does she not? What she doesn't do is have anyone talk about the narrator that's There's no it. third person yeah. discussion of the narrator. The dialogue is all dialogue between narrator and father. So it's all just you, um, you, you. And other than that, we're in the narrator's head, what this I does walking around. They're really amazing book. Poetics of Work is so strange and such a kind of refreshing antidote to lots of... Cause I, I would still say there's some kind of auto-fictional elements in the style or something, but yeah. it's so much more fragmented and kind of, I don't know, I don't know what the phrase is, like dreamlike. And then I read Blue Self-Portrait and I was struck by how completely different the book is. Like the structure, like I said, is like this kind of long, unbroken stream of thought. Whereas Poetics of Work is fragmented kind of multiple in multiple ways, like all the paragraphs are split up with um, kind of spacing and then there's chapters. And then there's also this like there's a few things that are like lesson one, lesson two about yes. poetry or about work. I can't, can't quite remember the details of them. Yeah, that's a series of 10 lessons, lessons in the sense of maxims, I suppose, ostensibly addressed to young poets, um, which could make up a treatise like the poetics of work or something like that. But it's, uh, they are a little bit silly, some of them. Or, or you know, imply a bit too much, but it's not about poetry or, you know, they, they are odd. They're kind of, there's magical elements to them. That's the way I was thinking about it. But they're, but they're so, they're such different works. And I felt almost stupid for having thought about the poetics of work in terms of autofiction, because the characters that, the narrator's characters are so, well, they're not, and they're not so different, but they're, they're very obviously different characters. And it struck me that she's just good at she's just good at creating a character. She's not like drawing necessarily on her own life because in the poetics of the work, the character's like a, almost like a stoner 
living off the royalties of some, you know, kind of shitty supermarket. I can't remember what her phrase is. It's a nice phrase. It's like a supermarket novel or something. It is a supermarket novel. That's the only place it sells, but it sells yeah. a lot. Um, <laughs> what does she call it? It took me a while to work this out. A thick wit novel. Oh, that's it. I've got it too. It's, yeah. <laughs> a thick yeah. wit novel. So do you remember what that was in the original French? Um, yes, it's a roman débile. It just, it's a stupid novel. It's like stupid, like S-T-O-O, that okay, kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how many books has she done? She did Blue Self-Portrait and Poetics of Work, but she, has she done more in French? Yes, she's done, I think, six or seven, oh. um, including a couple with little presses. And there were two that I've reported on for the publishers, Poetique de l'Enfance, which, oh no, hang on, Politics of, oh, hang on, I'm going to find them and say okay. the titles correctly. Yeah. L'état des sentiments à l'âge adulte, which means, badly translated, um, the state of feeling in the adult age or as an adult, that's better. And um, l'enfance politique, which means a, a political childhood. And then most recently, um, a double-sided book. It's it's parle, which on one side, the first one, and that means speak. And the other side is tétoi, which means shut up. <laughs> that's quite fun. So um, wait, it's, you can read the novel both ways, or there are two stories that you can read? There's two books in it. There's two books. And she's pitched it, well, just described it as uh, the book and the commentary on the book. And for her, this is because she's not she's not a literature professor. So she's not a kind of academic who does commentary. So she's had a go at that as an outsider. Pardle is very much kind of talking heads type. It's it's a, a sort of ongoing, never ending riff on idée reçue, kind of kind of things we understand, sayings that we say about modern life and the implications of them, and then woven further into sayings that we say. And it, it's, this, it's a sort of, it's quite Beckettian, I think it goes on, it doesn't stop, we don't know who's speaking. Mm. And then Tétoi is a sort of analysis, a deconstruction of what goes on, not just in Parle, but also when we create a commentary. I think she's, she's done pretty, really, really well for someone who claims not to know what they're doing. <laughs> um, so are you going to translate another one of her books? Well, there was a choice made in order to choose Poetics of Work. That was chosen oh. of the three. That seemed like the best one that would speak well to people not in France. And so I would like to work on the other two because I think they're both brilliant, in particular one of them. But this latest one, Pardon and Tétoise, is like, you know, it's got the glitz of the new and it's being talked about. I've got some really nice reviews. And it's also been sent to me by her publisher. And she said, you know, you're going to have a nightmare with this one <laughs> with a smile on her face. <laughs> That's kind of a red rag, you know. I, I don't like to say no to the really difficult ones. I, I would like to try it. Yeah. So I, I need to kind of have a think about whether I can do it and, and then tell everybody who might publish it that I, I want to do it. But wait, you said something that I didn't know what it was. You said something like you've done a report for the publisher or a publisher's report. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the grimy backside of publishing Publishers that who publish books in translation either often can't read the languages of, in which the books are written or they don't have time. Mm -hmm. And so they call on people who have some sense of that author's work or that literary scene to maybe translators, not always, quite often translators, to read the books, write a report, sometimes submit a sample so they can have a sense of what it's like when it hits English and send that to them. Um, it's slave labour. It pays extremely badly. Mm. But there's quite often, well, there's the possibility of a translation at the end of it. Yeah. Um, and it's good to be talking to publishers about what they're interested in. So that's kind of why 
one would do it. But do, what is the report? Is it just about what the book's about or is it about its impact in, you know, in France in this case? Or is it, is it, is it purely about the book or is it about kind of market stuff as well? No, it's, it's definitely about market stuff too. Uh, it's definitely about the book. It's about the reception in France, but it's very much about how that would translate into an English market and whether it would translate and who would read it and whether it would be something you, the you particular publisher, would publish really well, would look good next to your other books, you know, would make sense given your taste, that kind of stuff. So you didn't do one of those for Blue Self-Portrait? Because that no, was, I didn't. That, <laughs> that, was... Was, that was wanted already. And also Cécile is French, so she's the uh, reader. Okay, okay, okay. So she'd mm. found it anyway. But she's very rare in the scene as, as someone who is that good at reading the language. I imagine sometimes when you work with the same writer, they write books in the same way each time and you come to know them better over time and you kind of know their style or their tone or how, you know, kind of how you want to phrase that. But these two books are a good example of where that just isn't the case. So was it like when you started sitting down to translate Poetics of Work after having translated Blue Self-Portrait, are you immediately aware that it's a completely different tone or does it does it kind of build up and you start to realise that it's a different tone? Or were you already aware of that because you'd read them in the French anyway? I had some awareness of that from my first readings, but I don't, I try not to think too hard about that in advance, partly because as you say, it's quite a big concern and an, and a and one of detail at the same time. It matters a lot. Therefore, if I get hung up on it, that will be difficult. So I try not to think about it and to let it build. And what I found in Poetics of Work was a series of collages with material taken in a kind of serial form from some of the same sources over again. So if you take the collage idea, we've got like this book and that book or this magazine and that scene. And she's taken pieces of them and laid them over and created a whole with loads and loads of them. So there were several tones, I think, that I needed to get right in there. One of them, occasionally, quite rarely, was not very far from Blue Self-Portrait, mm. but more often the sort of stoner flanner person who runs around with demonstrations but isn't really political and doesn't isn't demonstrating, in fact, isn't taking part. And the one who holds parties with people they don't know as well. This, this person was the dominant one. But then there was all the, the Klemper, the Krauss, the Kafka, the deliberate allowing in of Ginsburg in that stoner's life. Mm. Um, Ginsburg and Whitman were quite important, more like Wayne markers. They weren't really sort of tone collage stuff, but they, they did infect some parts of the text. I realised at times that I was reading Ginsburg translated into French by Noémie, in like where it's not, it's set out in poetry. I found things like Dans le dos du réel, which means literally in the back of the real and I was trying to translate this and I couldn't work out what it meant and then I was like aha this this is in back of the real <laughs> you know so that kind of stuff happened so to be clear that's a direct translation of Ginsburg is that what you're saying that's the title of one of the yeah. poems that she quotes um but she doesn't give the title of the poem when she quotes it yeah so it's you know it's a little bit distant and so finding it was like, you know, it was like a little archaeological dig. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, stuff comes and it's OK to piece it together bit by bit, I think, with tone. What do you I mean, this is just a more general question, but how would you describe the idea of tone? Mm, it's a really difficult one. I think tone is tone is very close to style, but mm -hmm. style stands out more. Style is a little bit more ostentatious and therefore it's deliberate. You could probably name most styles or describe most styles 
more easily than you can describe a tone. Yeah. I think tone is specifically not very noticeable, except when you train your eye on that aspect of things. And it's made up of the same kinds of choices that would create a style, but possibly they're also more micro level too. Mm. So how you construct sentences, what the lengths of those clauses are, how you connect them, habits of, of writing, how you structure the paragraphs, perspectives, it, it, it's everything. It really is. It's the complete everything and what that adds up to. Mm. And that means um, at, at its crudest, is this ironic or is this mm. like a play or is this like a Wolfian monologue or, you know, it, what all of these things, you can pull them apart, you can dissect them like a, a close criticism and discover what makes up the tone. Then put it all back in and you've realised that you've understood what the tone is made of, but you still can't give it a name. Yeah, that's the difference, right, between style and tone is that style, to a certain extent, I'm sure some people would argue otherwise, you could kind of describe it and describe the techniques that have created it or the decisions that have created it. You were talking about intention before. Yeah, I would like to hear how you are thinking about it. Well, I mean, I I think the, the reason I'm drawn to it is because it seems to be one of those things where the best description I've seen of it is um, Sean, a guy who's a uh, kind of a literary theorist, but philosopher. Um, and, and she trained under Stanley Cavell, who I think we spoke about before, and him, him being kind of culture studies, one of the kind of originators of that way of working. And I think she takes it from him. It's this idea of, and this is what I like about it, is that this is all also quite a tricksy definition. So a semblance of feeling that is identified with a series of techniques, but not reducible to any of them, or even reducible to them as a group. So even in that definition, you have like something that's like something else. So like... Mm tone is like feeling it kind of resembles feeling or is a resembling object of feeling or something and then you have this thing where you can explain it in terms of technique but that isn't the explanation for it and i love the fact that like at both levels you're not getting the thing you can't you haven't got something that is like equivalent to something else and i think that is what draws me to it because i guess that's the kind of remainder or something and that's why i think i wanted to ask you about it because i, I suppose with translation there's this probably a, a very obviously false idea of their of the two texts having some like one-to-one equivalent and i suppose it never has that and at the same time it does have that and it aspires to that but it always fails to do that and if it did do that then it wouldn't be a very good translation like all of these things like yeah. are never resolved or something and i just think it's really fascinating that even in the two books that you, you know that i've read because you translated them they're so they're such different objects and and me trying to talk to you about <laughs> them is such a weird conversation because I'm obviously talking to you about like a very specific thing that's in a way very s obvious what a translator does. But once you get into it, it becomes, yeah, this kind of um, Mobius strip of describing the relationship between me, this work, you, the French book and the and the author. I, I think the closer you get, it, it sort of atomizes. And uh, I think you're just left with the, the work of how you decided on each word and that definitely doesn't add up to the translation unless you kind of step back and just let it all happen again <laughs> it's mm. very yeah it, it doesn't stay still have you ever had to make any big decisions in a translation you were talking earlier about um kind of unfortunate situation in which the translators had made a decision about changing the tense have you ever had to do something like that just to make a book work i've not had anything as thoroughly needing changing as that. I did discover the perfect translation for something that recurs in Poetics of Work and it was perfect but not allowable in the US. It just, I mean, basically it's an English turn of phrase. It's its to take the piss, right? It, it was 
perfect, it remains perfect. But the primary publisher of that book was the US publisher. And I sort of wrote to him saying, you know, I think you're going to say no, but can I say take the piss here, 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 and here. And he said, no. <laughs> so I needed to find something else that wasn't, that was inevitably going to be not as good, but try and make the reader not realise that they're missing out on this incredibly perfect spot on British phrase. So let's just, just to be clear that it's not admissible in the US because it just isn't a turn of phrase over there, not because it has the I word. I just don't use it. And, and getting pissed is getting angry and it's confusing. And Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. And what's the, what was the original French phrase? Il faut tout de même pas chier. Il faut, il faut pas chier. It's, it's, it's impossible to translate in any literal way. It means you, you mustn't, take a shit or something like that or you really mustn't take a shit literally but that's not what it means what it means is don't don't be annoying oh, don't don't mess yeah. around so don't take know? the piss as in don't push it don't don't overstep that's the it. mark yeah yeah that's exactly it you've got it um so i wrote to him can i can i write you shouldn't go taking the piss and i gave him a couple of alternatives which i really didn't rate and he wrote back saying ha taking the piss is one of my favorite british expressions but maybe also because it is so British and I would cringe if an American said it, you can't have it. <laughs> oh. So what did you use in the end? Um, I think this might be what, one of the things that I was thinking of when I was thinking about quite specific, almost anachronistic phrases. I can't remember what it is. Do you know? Right. I'm going to find... Because she says it a lot. It's a recurring thing, isn't it? Oh, mustn't give people too much shit. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. That's such a different way of describing that it's idea, isn't good. it? <laughs> I don't want to undo my great work, but it's not as good. No, but that's so interesting because I was talking to, I don't know, in the last podcast, for whatever reason, we were talking about the fact that there are different editions of Harry Potter. I've never read the Harry Potter books, but this person was surprised that there would be different English and American editions of Harry Potter. But that makes sense in a book like that, right? Where it's got like, it's selling millions in each market. But I suppose yeah. for these these kind of books, like, yeah, you're only going to get one English translation. Unless it starts well, selling well, I suppose. The two publishers made small changes. Oh, they did? They did, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Do you remember any of the changes they made in the uh, between the American and English one? Yeah, this is this is all in our correspondence. I don't yeah. think I do right now. No, that's fine, that's fine. Um, I mean, to an extent, I need to let it go, you know? <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing as well, right? Like if, if I was a writer, if I was having something published, there would be a point at which I'd be like, I do not care. Like, do what you like. I mean, obviously, like, you get your edits done and stuff. But if they yeah. were like, oh, we just need to change this word, I'd be like, yeah, sure. I'm not even going to look at that. Just do it. And yeah. do, I suppose you have that same feeling as a translator, right? There's a point at which you're like, this is, to me, it's finished. And any changes anyone makes are kind of, well, I suppose you do yeah. care what they are. but No, I care. I want to know. But but absolutely, there's a, there's a point like that. There's a point where... You've not only done the job, you've also done the advocacy. You've yeah. fought for your corner and it's either been accepted mm. or not or, you know, modified in some way. And that's that's the best, that's the most you want to do, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not healthy otherwise. <laughs> yeah, fucking fast was really a standout um, kind of repetition in poetics of work because it's used in lots of different ways, like over and over again. And I suppose that's that's one of those things, right, where it's a, it's a motif that's recurring, but it's kind of being changed in the way it's used or something. So it's like at some point you just have to, even as a translator, I suppose, you just have to accept that it's going to come up over and over again and not worry too much about the context or exactly what information is being passed over by that. In Noemi's work, I tend to see it as musical. It's like yeah. hitting the same 
chord sequence again after a little while. Yeah, it's properly a motif. It's genuinely a motif in the sense of 20th and 21st century music where you hit a note or... I know it's more like a cadence. It's more like a sequence. So it comes back in that way. Yeah, like a refrain. Something to enjoy on its own terms or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, this, I mean, this, this would have required one of us to do some prep, but we were talking about uh, famous mistranslation. You were talking about a very interesting thing, which is famous or like not famous, but mistranslations between French and English in philosophy that yeah. ended up being kind of absorbed, being absorbed into the kind of philosophical culture. Did you remember any of those? Well, the, the one that's easiest to describe is the canals of Mars. So, so the idea is that an Italian, I suppose the word is astronomer, um, was describing in a scientific way, in the sense, you know, describing is, is, is really purposeful, what he saw on the surface of Mars. And he described something called canali. And it's quite a versatile word in Italian. It's everything from canals to furrows to channels to, you know, it, it, it's, it's shapes that are, that are indented, mm. uh, that go on, that are sinuous, that curve. And the English astronomers reading his paper at the time thought they were canals and thought there was water potentially on Mars. And they've been called the canals of Mars in English until really recently. And we've had this idea that there there were waterways on Mars for a really long time based on this man's description of the ground, the landscape. You know, it's just not it's just not what he meant to say at all. You know, that's just silly, really. But that kind of that kind of thing happens because things go unquestioned. Oh, something happened really recently. Uh, The kind of diplomatic standoff you hope that never I I really don't know the context so I'll have to research it but um, you hope that interpreters are there and everyone's doing their job and everyone's also calm enough that if there's a mistake it will be corrected in the next sentence but um, yeah there were demands being made from one government to another government and the demands I think were being made on the English government the English government thought that if it complied that would be complying under a state of pressure you know under under duress and so refused and there was a massive standoff and the point is that in French to ask for something is demander so it was just a request <laughs> of the ordinary status of any kind of you know this these would be our preferred conditions yeah 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 um, it wasn't a demand it wasn't you know we will lay siege to you if you don't do x y and z so that's one of the most basic mistranslations that just completely flawed a whole negotiation. Thanks so much to Sophie for coming on and for turning my sometimes nonsense questions into very interesting answers. I hope you enjoyed it. Definitely I would advise to go out and read Noemi Lefebvre's work. It's really amazing. Hopefully if Sophie translates Noemi's next book, then maybe she can come back on on the podcast and talk about that as well. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.